Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing, and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello, welcome to this week in review with Nigel Farage. And we have a special guest, Rob Marstrand from UK Independent Wealth, the investment director. Rob, this is the first time you're joining us on Week in Review. How do you feel about it? Well, very glad to uh, join you all. I know that um, readers of Fortune and Freedom occasionally see me writing things for them, but uh, hopefully I'll have something to say as well. So we were looking into a particular topic today, but Nigel suggested also covering the Coinbase IPO. So this is an initial public offering of a crypto exchange. It's the first one. And Nigel, I think this is a signal that cryptocurrency is continuing, continuing along its path to legitimacy, basically. Oh, completely and utterly. I mean, you know, we've been saying this and, and putting this out to Fortune and Freedom, you know, since the end of last year, that, that whatever you think of this, you know, have a look at it because it is gaining acceptance. Um, it is becoming recognized, you know, as a serious alternative asset increasingly being used in transactions. I even saw overnight that um, number one Hyde Park, the most expensive property in the UK, the seller of that, Nick Candy, is prepared to accept crypto. Now, that would have been unthinkable six months ago, a year ago. So, it, it, you know, it shows there is a growing acceptance of this. And I think a lot of it is that people are seeing Biden stimulus package, which seems to grow every time I put the news on. You know, it's trillions and trillions and trillions. And, and there is a genuine fear about the debasement of money. And so people say, well, hey, thing about these cryptocurrencies is they've got a limited, a finite supply, you know, unlike money creation that we're seeing on a scale that we've never ever seen before. So I think that explains also why there is so much interest in this sector. Now, we've always emphasized to people that, you know, picking the bottom and top of these markets and knowing when to get in is a very, very difficult thing to do. But that, uh, if, if there was a fundamental flaw in how these currencies are, currencies are designed, my view is it would have been found by now, and it hasn't. So I just think it's a continuing part of the story. Uh, it's here to stay, and it's going to present governments, ultimately, with the most gigantic problem. Because if there's a whole parallel world out there on which people are buying and selling things, how does government raise revenue, etc.? They're political questions, but from an investment perspective, you know, for those watching this who've been shaking their heads and saying it's all mumbo jumbo, well, guys, actually, it's really happening. Rob, one of the most interesting things about this is that usually with these sorts of tech trends, the smart money gets in first, the big institutions, the really clued in investors. But when it comes to cryptocurrencies, it seems that they are coming in last. Now, you used to be inside the establishment. You used to be a banker. And I wonder what you make of the fact that you know, this idea of, of almost you know, teenagers who have no interest in finance got onto this trend well before anyone else, and then it's made its way up. And it, it seems like the last people to get involved are the investment bankers. How do you think they're feeling about it? Um, well, I'm sure they're kicking themselves a bit, but uh, I remember years and years ago talking to someone about gold and, and the establishment hated gold because it doesn't pay a, a dividend or a, or a coupon. Um, and they probably felt much the same way about Bitcoin, except it's in the ether, it's in the, the sort of uh, electronic world. But uh, yeah, I remember, look, I remember talking to people quite early on back in 2011, let's say, and the people that were into crypto were sort of what most people would label as crackpots and anarchists. 
I mean, it was really quite an extreme sort of bunch of people who thought it was the way that they were going to take over the world. And now it's becoming more and more establishments and we're seeing institutions and, and such like uh, setting up funds and, and whatnot. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I would just add one note of caution, which is exactly kind of linked to what Nigel says actually is, is because it's being so successful, the risk of government intervention actually might go up over time, particularly in places like China, which is an important place for Bitcoin mining. And they can't stop Bitcoin existing. What they can do is they can block the node between the Bitcoin world and the regular banking world and, and make it illegal to, to pass it across. So there's just that risk that hangs out there in the future and we don't know what's gonna happen. But yeah, it's, it's clearly, um, clearly is going more and more mainstream by the year. What you've just mentioned is a big topic in next week's Fortune and Freedom. So if you are interested in that, stay tuned. But let's move on to today's real topic, what we discussed on Tuesday in our regular meeting, when we think about what we should talk about in meetings uh, such as this one. And we talked about three different things, but it turned out that they were all really the same. So I remember, Nigel, you called it a flight to quality and Rob called it a bifurcation in the market. So Nigel, why don't you explain what you mean and why you think it's happening? Well, what we've been saying for the last few months is there is good reason to be cautious of much of what is going on on the edges of the stock market. And, and, and I mean, NASDAQ in particular, at the end of last year, you know, Rob was talking and he'll give you the numbers in a moment, but Rob was talking about the massive growth, you know, the PE ratios going to, to, to levels that are quite extraordinary. Lots of companies that haven't made a beam. And yet with huge enormous valuations um, and that's the reason that we've been urging you know people to be pretty cautious when they look at stocks uh, and to pick ones uh, that really matter now you know we've now had nearly 11 years of continuous rising stock markets it cannot go on forever it's going on at the moment and of course the more government stimulus and funny money creation there is you can see why it's doing what it is but at some point when the markets turn, uh, you, know, you will then find that a lot of these companies uh, that, as I say, haven't made a beam, uh, you, know, you will see dramatic falls in some of those share prices. But the point is that when that happens, investors go to firms that actually have positive cash balances and real businesses. Uh, the famous, I, I know it's a long time ago, the mid-1970s, but Jim Slater, who was a great city icon, you know, made this comment that in a bear market, cash is king. And nobody's ever summed it up better, uh, you know, than Jim Slater did all those years ago. And I think what we're beginning to see already on both sides of the Atlantic uh, is, is a shift, not a massive one at the moment, but definitely an investor move to safer companies that are actually making products and actually making profits. And I think, I think that, that process from, from what I can see, has already started. Rob, you anticipated this in UK independent wealth. It was one of the reasons why you started out with some fairly cautious recommendations, as Nigel mentioned. Do you see this as the big turning point, as, as Nigel's hinted at, or is there perhaps more boom to come? What's, what's going to happen next? Well, I suppose there's lots of different angles on that, but... Um... The first thing is, is how do you define when there's a bubble or, a, or an overinflated market or over exuberance? And you don't necessarily do it by looking at valuation at first. What you look at is have prices rocketed by 
two times, three times, four times within a very short period of time without anything fundamentally changing in the underlying businesses. And that's definitely what we've seen in pockets of the market. Some of the tech stock start stuff, the, the kind of green energy, the poster child might be Tesla, for example, that makes, you know, battery electric vehicles, which are interesting, but are they actually going to be around in 20 years or are we all going to be using hydrogen? I don't know. But, you know, we, so we saw that massive run up. Things peaked around sort of January um, time. A lot of this stuff's already down about 30%. Now, this is where it gets interesting. So since then, things have bounced up a bit, gone sideways, whatever. But if you look at previous episodes of bubbles, so for example, the late 90s, NASDAQ 100 tech, media and telecoms or dot-com bubble, which was the biggest <clears throat> ever in the US market history. It peaked in March 2000. The market crashed quite quickly in, about, in April. And then it went sideways, up and down until about September, until it took the next leg down. So there were a few months of bubbling around. And I suspect with some of this bubblier stuff that we're going through that kind of rebalancing. Everyone's trying to work out. So a lot of people still buy into the hype, other people are nervous. And I think we could get another big leg down later in the year. And overall, you know, the NASDAQ bubble took, um, you know, it took from March 2000 to, I think, October 2002 to fully deflate about 80% or more. So it took two, over two and a half years. And I suspect this process will take a similar amount of time. But you don't want to be on board when it is deflating, I'll tell you that. So it's not worth the risk yet. Rob, on our meeting on Tuesday, you called this a dead cat bounce. Can you explain to the readers what that means? Well, it's the sort of, um, it's, it's just one example of sort of gallows humor of the finance and investment world. So a dead cat bounce is, is the concept that if something falls from a high enough height, it will bounce at some point, even if it's a dead cat. So, you know, it's not very, uh, it's not a very nice image, but it is a rather powerful one and easy to remember. Nigel, one of the areas that are looking up at the moment is commodities. And we have like lumber prices absolutely soaring. I know not specifically lumber, but the metals used to be your area of expertise. So what do you make of this ability of the commodities to, to surge while other asset prices seem to be struggling? Well, a lot of this is to do with inflation and, and there's a big circular debate. Uh, do rising commodity prices cause inflation or does inflation cause rising commodity prices? And in the end, they kind of very often both feed into each other. Um, the, I mean, the great thing about commodities, of course, is you know, metals and, and, and industrial products is, of course, consumption. And we have to remember uh, that much as this virus, some call it the China virus, others have different words, but whatever you want to call it, the fact is that China is, com is coming out of this relatively unaffected. And China is the main driver of commodity prices. Why? Because it's got 1.4 billion people. And there's a process that's been going on in China of people leaving a kind of subsistence existence in the countryside and moving into cities. I mean, who'd heard of Wuhan 18 months ago? Most British people have never heard of Wuhan. And yet it's bigger than London. Um, so you've got this process where the Chinese are moving into big cities. And you know what? They actually want to have fridges. They actually want to have, you know, Western consumables. And the last big commodity boom, certainly the big commodity boom that we saw in metals, which was sort of 2004 to 2008, that was driven. That was driven by China undergoing these huge changes. And I think there is a feeling I think there is a feeling that 
post the virus, and let's cross our fingers and hope there is a sort of West Coast virus, uh, you know, that actually demand is going to pick up in all sorts of ways. So, you know, the outlook for commodities is, is I think, the most bullish it's been for a very long time. Rob, if I could just, if I could just um, pick up on, on a point there, just quickly. Um, so something we've discussed between us is, is the way that the price of copper has rocketed since the sort of beginning of last year. And I read a piece uh, in the last few days, which was suggesting that copper is the new oil as the world electrifies more and more and more, and you need more copper wire everywhere. And all these electric vehicles that are going to be sold and all the rest of it. And uh, these people were saying that within a couple of years, you know, the copper price could double again. Now, that's not something necessarily that's correct, and these predictions can be often wildly wrong. However, it may indicate something that Nigel was talking about is the speculators now getting on board. This was from a big investment bank talking up copper. And if enough people believe that and pile on, then it becomes self-fulfilling. And then obviously that's also inflationary, which is another concern. Rob, the key question that's on my mind personally, actually, with my own investments is whether the UK can diverge from the rest of Europe if this vaccine mess continues the way it's going, where the UK's COVID situation improves, whereas Europe starts to struggle more and more, both in terms of COVID and then the economic impacts. Do you think a divergence can happen or do you think the UK markets will be dragged down alongside the rest of the world even? Well, the UK has one obvious advantage, which is that it achieved Brexit and that has allowed it to move faster with the vaccines and it provides more uh, flexibility of government. Now, whether government uses that flexibility wisely is a, is a very big question. And uh, I certainly wouldn't say that the current UK government has been exactly uh, a paragon in, in regards to this, but it did get one thing right, very right, which is the whole vaccine purchasing early without actually knowing whether they would exist. Another thing is that the FTSE 100 has essentially gone sideways since 1999. I mean, up and down, but it hasn't really gone anywhere. And uh, UK stocks look actually reasonably priced compared to a lot of other parts of the world. And as we come out of this, all the Brexit uncertainty, but also out of the, the COVID recession, we could see quite a few people interested in, in UK stocks and start big, bidding them up. That said, um, you know, no one should kid themselves. The UK has some major structural problems that all developed countries have, which are massive debts, particularly government debts, but also household debts, and um, an aging population, which is, you know, moving into retirement and needs more healthcare and pensions and all the rest of it. So I wouldn't say the UK is in a perfect position, but it has some advantages uh, for investors compared to some other places. Well, let me I just chip like in there. Let me just chip in there as somebody who's been known as Mr. Brexit. Uh, whatever problems the UK has, and Rob, I do share uh, you know, your concern. Will the British government seize the initiative and seize the advantage? But I tell you what, I'm a lot more bullish the UK for the next five years than I am France, Germany or Italy. Uh, and of that, I'm absolutely certain. I'm sure all three of us would agree with that point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 totally, I totally agree with that, Nigel. It's just, it's just you know, it's, it's a race of people, that, of, of countries that have some very big structural problems. But yeah, the UK is in a better position, but I've got some concerns too. I feel like it would be the final humiliation of Project Fear if the, the FTSE finally did break out of this range that's been in since 1999, Nigel. Can you imagine? Uh, one last example of the despite Brexit phenomenon. Well, look, I think the great thing is we're all Brexiteers now, aren't we? And you know, some polling out from Bloomberg this week showing 
you know, that a significant percentage of those that voted remain would now vote leave. Um, and yeah, the vaccine rollout's given the perfect illustration uh, that if you're making your own decisions, you've got flexibility and adaptability. Doesn't mean you get everything right, but at least you can actually make decisions rather than going through a sclerotic process, uh, you know, with 27 countries, and then those decisions subcontracted to a bureaucracy called the European Commission, you know, that nobody can vote for, that nobody can remove. And in the case of vaccines, I mean, just think about this, a completely unknown woman from Cyprus, no one knows her name, who hasn't been elected, was put in charge of the vaccine rollout for over 400 million people. Apart from a degree in psychology, I couldn't see anything she'd done in her life that really equipped her for making big decisions. Is anyone surprised that they've made such a complete and utter mess of it? And I think it's also quite significant that in the autumn of this year, we've got the German general election coming up, the, the, the reign of Frau Merkel uh, coming to an end. Perhaps they'll find someone who smiles next, you never know. But interesting that the the Eurosceptic party there, AFD, and, and they've had some problems, political problems, but they do have nearly 100 seats in the German parliament. And they've said they're gonna fight that election campaign in September on a ticket of Germany leaving the EU. So be in no doubt that Brexit, what's happened in the aftermath of Brexit, there are major long-term implications here for what happens within the whole of the EU, within the whole of the Eurozone and nothing I've seen makes me change my prediction that in 10 years time it simply won't exist. The question is when it breaks up just how much economic damage could that be? Well I think we've covered literally every topic that's been in the news over the last few weeks and what might be yet to come in the next few weeks. Thanks very much for joining us at home and thanks to the two guests as well.